Good morning, church. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And as you do that, I want to remind you that uh, next week is Great Commission Sunday. Make plans to be here. I want to remind this service especially, both services will be held over in the sanctuary next week. So this service will be meeting over there. All right, And that's so we can get this room uh, set up for something that we'll do later in the day that I'll mention in just a second. But we will have both services in the sanctuary. We'll be highlighting uh, our mission partners, local and global, and it'll be exciting to hear some reports from the mission partners that you help us support, and so you won't want to miss that. We'll also have a message shared by a guest mission speaker, uh, Robert Lane, and, and then after that, we'll have uh, lunch right in here, and that's the reason why we need this room clear, so that our hospitality crew can set this room up, and we're going to have lunch, food from the nations. It's going to be an exciting day also in this room after the services. Our mission partners will have booths set up. You'll be able to go by their booths and encourage them and hear more about how maybe you can help and serve, and, uh, and you'll be encouraged. So don't miss next week, Great Commission Sunday. Um, make sure you make plans to be here and bring somebody with you. All right, so Ephesians chapter 2 is where we are this morning as we continue our study through the book of Ephesians called Unsearchable Riches. Let me ask you this question. Does anybody here like to read biographies? All right. All right, I literally see three hands. All right, so three, three people like to read biographies. Uh, some of us like to read biographies. Let me ask you another question, rhetorical question. That means answer that in your mind and not out loud. All right, is there someone who's written a biography about your life? Is there a biographical book out there about your life? Now, you're immediately like, that's a ridiculous question because I would answer it the same way. We're all kind of like, I'm not sure my life is you know, interesting enough and I'm not famous enough for anyone to come along and want to publish my story so it could be on the bookshelves at Barnes & Noble. Nobody's buying that, right? So you're thinking, of course no one has written a biography about my life, but that's actually, if you're in Christ, not a completely accurate statement. Because if you're a Christian this morning, this next passage that we're studying this morning in Ephesians chapter 2 is a biography of sorts that God himself has written about your life. And I pray that as we study this, I pray that it will lead you in a fresh way to a place of marveling at how the grace of God has intersected with your story as a Christian. And I pray that if you're not a Christian, that by the time we're done, even today, that this could be a story that is your story. A biography that would describe your life. So let's read it. Ephesians chapter 2. Stand with your Bibles open. So we read God's holy word. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning to read in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, uh, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is your story if you're in Christ. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, we pray that you would have your way among us today. It's the only way for us to move forward. And so, Heavenly Father, it's good to be in your presence this morning, to learn from your word, to be in this place worshiping you with your people. 
And Lord, I pray that you'd make these verses alive to us in a fresh way today, that you would help us as we study this and work through this to marvel more at the amazing grace that you've lavished on us. And we thank you for your grace. It's amazing grace, and we rejoice in it, and we're grateful for it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, if we look at this passage like a biography of our life as a disciple, if we think about it as like a biographical book, you know, books are divided up into chapters, and you can kind of see four clear chapters surface in these ten verses, all right? And if we divided, you know, this biographical little book right here, verses one through ten, into four chapters, the first chapter would be titled this, Buried in Sin. That would be the first chapter in our biography that God's written about our life, if you're a Christian. Buried in sin. First, what Paul's doing is he's reaching back and dealing with who we were before Christ entered our story. Let me give you a warning here, by the way, this morning, that these verses that we're going to look at right here at the outset of this is not going to boost your confidence very much this morning. All right? If you're here this morning, especially if you're outside of God's grace, if you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and you're coming here looking for some positive, encouraging Caleb type of preaching right out here, out of the gate, you're not going to find it right here. Right, there's a lot of bad news here in the first chapter of our biography. Look back again at verse 1. Paul opens up with this, And you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked. Paul says it very clearly, you were dead. Now in the late 80s, there was a movie, a comedy that made a lot of money at the box office called Weekend at Bernie's. All right? Not recommending you watch that movie. I actually never even seen that movie, but I remember as a kid seeing previews about it. And I remember kind of generally understanding what it was about. Uh, and so I had to go back and look up the plot. I'm not going to give you the entire plot, but some of you have seen it. Some of you saw the previews and you kind of understand what's going on. But basically, the whole movie is about two young friends. They're co-workers, and they uh, are going to this like posh island they've been invited there by their boss whose name's bernie who they get there and he's dead and they basically spend the rest of the movie there's a lot of plot gaps to fill in there but they spend the rest of the movie trying to make it look like he's alive propping him up with sunglasses with a hat with clothes and they kind of stumble him around to different places trying to convince other people that he just is kind of hanging out that he's alive uh, and, and so that was what the movie's about. So, and, and the reason why people like went in droves to the theater, the reason why people spent money to go watch that, the reason why some of you rented the VHS tape from the video store to watch it at your home, is the absurdity of it, right? It's, that's what makes it funny, is a, is a dead person can't do anything, and everybody knows that. And yet you have a dead person here stumbling around, pretending to be alive, right? He's physically there, but he's dead. He can't say anything. He can't do anything. He can't, like, genuinely respond to anybody. He's dead. Well, that's how the Apostle Paul is describing our spiritual state as human beings here before we meet Christ. There you go. (laughs) The gospel according to Weekend at Bernie's for you this morning. Before Christ entered our story, how does it all begin? You were dead. You were as dead spiritually as Bernie was dead physically. You're a dead man walking. Now, you may be thinking, oh, wait a second. And you may be here hearing the gospel and kind of taking this in for the first time. And you're, wait a second. I mean, dead? Is it really that extreme? Dead? Really? I mean, I may be a little sleepy this morning. I lost an hour of sleep, but I'm not dead. Right? Well, physically, right, you may not be dead right now. We're living beings. There's no denying that. We have personality. We have energy. We have intellect. But spiritually, it's a different story. 
We find out how he got into this spiritual state in Genesis chapter 3. You know, God creates Adam and Eve. They exist in paradise. They exist in perfection. They are physically alive. They are spiritually alive. There's nothing broken. Everything is absolutely perfect. God gave them the entire perfect world to enjoy and exist in with only one request. Stay away from one tree. Don't eat from it. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 3, God said this, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you what here it is lest you die now many of us know the rest of that story that satan slithers in in the form of a serpent and tempts eve to eat from that tree and she eats of the forbidden fruit and then verse six says she also gave some to her her husband who it says was with her quote was with her Right? We need to just pause there and like we overlook that part, right? We're, we're, we kind of like to beat up on Eve, right? If Eve wouldn't have ate the fruit, right? It's Eve's fault. She went first, right? The woman messed it all up for all of us. But wait a second, before you go there, remember that Adam had been given the responsibility spiritually to lead his home and to lead his wife. And what did he do? He let her be the guinea pig. Think about that. She ate the fruit and he just kind of stepped back with a clipboard and took notes and said, let's just see kind of what happens here, right? And when he... Notice that there didn't appear to be any consequence for Eve. Then he stepped in and he took a bite himself, right? Big old courageous Adam right there. Then in the very next verse, what does it say? It says, then they both died. No, it doesn't say that, does it? It actually says the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and sewed fig leaves together and tried to hide themselves. And if you read the rest of Genesis chapter 3 and you read what happens to Adam and Eve, you're going to probably start thinking, wait, I thought God said they were going to die and yet it still seems like they're alive. Physically, yes. Physically, they're alive. But spiritually, they died. In that moment of rebellion, they died spiritually. So what do you mean by that? Well, every day up to this point, Adam and Eve would spend their days fellowshipping with God, enjoying and delighting in unbroken fellowship with their maker, with their heavenly father. But as soon as they ate that fruit, everything changed. And instead of anticipating and looking forward to enjoying the presence of God, they were running from the presence of God. Why? Because they had spiritually died. In that on that day, they lost the ability to naturally have a relationship with God. Their sin caused the part of them that had been alive to God to die to God. Now you say, well, what does that have to do with us? Well, in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul actually uh, draws a link for us. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men. What he means there is ever since Adam and Eve Every person who was born onto this planet, which includes you and includes me, we are born dead to God and alive to sin. That's our reality apart from Christ. And Paul impacts here a little bit more about what we were up to as spiritually dead people. He says in verses 2 and 3, before Christ entered our lives, we were naturally following what some have called the unholy trinity. right? The world, the devil, and the flesh. In other words, we were naturally, apart from Christ, just going with the flow of the wicked system of the world. A system that's ruled by the devil, who's called here the prince of the power of the air. Meaning, when we were going with the flow of the world, as spiritually dead people outside of the redeeming grace of Christ, we were actually following, literally following the influence of Satan. Look at verse 3, it says, we were also following our flesh. 
Verse 3 says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. What that means is just as sin, as we just looked at a moment ago, entered in and corrupted the world when the fall happened, so too as fallen beings... With the sin curse of Adam and Eve running through our veins, our thoughts, our actions, our will, our decisions outside of Christ have been compromised and corrupted by sin. So before Jesus, we're spiritually dead people. We're naturally following the ways of the world, ruled by the prince of power of the air and following the corrupt desires of our heart. That's our biography. That's the first chapter of our biography here in verses 1 through 3. It can be summarized like this. We're dead in sin. We're dominated by demonic forces. We're disobedient, doomed children of wrath awaiting the judgment of God to fall on our life. Now, in 2023, that's not a very cool message to be preaching in some churches. Not very politically correct. It's actually totally contrary to the prevailing thought in culture, which is people are basically good and just need of a little bit of nudging and redirection in order for them to live a life that's good for God, right? That's not a Christian idea. The Christian worldview actually starts darker and much more grim than that. Yes, we are image bearers of God. Yes, we come into this world fearfully and wonderfully made, but because of sin, we aren't basically good in need of redirection. We're spiritually dead in need of new life altogether. We don't just need some life coaching. We need to be reborn. We don't just need a moral guide to show us the way. We need something to come to us to bring us back to life. We're born dead, disobedient, doomed. That's really bad news. Verses 1 through 3 of our biography, really, really bad news. But praise God, our biography doesn't end at verse 3. We turn the page. In the next chapter in our biography, we find two incredible words. Two words. There in verse 4 that change everything. Two words that contain all the power of the gospel. Look at what it says, beginning of verse 4. What does it say? But God. Those are incredible words right there. We were hopeless. We were doomed. We were helpless. We were dead. We needed supernatural intervention, divine intervention. And we find it there in those two glorious words. But God. But God. But God steps in. And Paul's like, let me tell you a little something about the God who intervenes. He says, but God being what? Rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. This shows us the motivation behind the intervention. Paul says, yes, make no mistake. The whole Bible supports this. I just laid it out in verses 1 through 3. God is holy. God is just. He is righteous. His nature demands, because He is holy, that He pour out judgment on sin. And that's bad news for us because there's sin in us. But praise God, He's a God also of mercy. It doesn't just say that He is merciful. It says He's rich in mercy. In other words, His mercy accounts overflow with endless mercy and never, ever, ever run out. Then it says, because of His great love. He's a God of unending mercy. He's a God of perfect, great love. And what does He choose to do with all of that? What does He choose to do with it? Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ. What an incredible plot shift right here in our biography. 
If the first chapter could be titled Dead in Sin or Buried in Sin, here's the title of the next chapter, Raised to New Life in Christ. This is your story. Raised to new life in Christ. If you're in Christ, this is your story. You were spiritually dead, but God's made you alive in Christ. This is really, really important. This reminds us what Christianity is about and what it's not about. What Christianity is not about is me trying to be a nicer person to earn my way to God. Christianity is not about being a a more religious person or a better person. Christianity is about becoming a new person. It's about receiving new life in Christ. Listen, our sin, in our sin, we didn't need something to come and make us better. We needed life, right? Being better but dead is still dead. Being nice and dead is still dead. Being religious and dead is still dead. We need new life. We needed a miracle. We needed to experience the supernatural work of God in which He takes a dead soul and breathes new life into it. Maybe you've heard this illustration for the gospel. That's not the worst one. I just don't think it's really sufficient enough as you read a passage like this. But maybe you've heard this illustration that we're kind of like, we're in our sin and it's, we're drowning in our sin and it's kind of like we're out there in an ocean of sin and we're drowning in our sin and Jesus comes along. What the gospel is, is Jesus comes along in his boat and he throws out a life preserver and he's like, hey, grab onto the life preserver and I'll pull you in and I'll save you. And that's not the worst illustration ever. I just think it's insufficient. When you read a passage like this, listen, it's not just that we're flailing around in our sin. What this passage is saying is we were dead in our sin. Like on the ocean floor, in the deep and darkest part of the ocean, we are dead in our sin, unable to cling to anything, unable to reach for anything, unable to reach out for help. And the biblical gospel is that Jesus, compelled by His love for us, full of love for us, leaves His throne in heaven and actually dives into the sin Himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, became sin on our behalf. Listen, God didn't save us by looking the other way from our sin. God didn't save us by sweeping things under the rug. God didn't save us by overlooking our sin. God saved us by judging our sin in His only begotten Son. On the cross, Jesus became sin for us. And that all, I think about Calvary, there Jesus is on the cross and he's suffering and blood's being shed and he's been pinned to this cross with these Roman nails. He's being executed. It's terrible. His flesh has been torn. He's unrecognizable. He's got a crown of thorns on his head. He's suffering greatly, but the greatest suffering that he was experiencing is something you could not see with the naked eye. As God was pouring out the whole bucket of his wrath on Christ. And Jesus drank the full blow of the judgment of God against sin. And He died. The Son of God died. But the good news of the Gospels, He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead as a testimony that God accepted His sacrifice for our sin. And here's the Gospel. Now what we have is a resurrected Savior that now dives down into the depths of the sinful sea of this world and pursues lost and dead sinners like us who cry out for mercy and takes our lifeless body and supernaturally breathes new life into our breathless lungs. And why did He do that? This is your story if you're in Christ You need to be gripped by this once again this morning. Why did he do that? Because he loves you. He did that and went to those lengths because he loves you. And he's never stopped loving you. And he'll never stop loving you. He pursued you. He raised you to new life. You are his. And Paul said he did that because of his love is not just good, it's great. And now you're his beloved, which means you're not just loved by God. In Christ Jesus, you're greatly loved by God. 
You're a recipient of his grace. You're a recipient of his love. You're a recipient of a mercy that's limitless. As a raised son or daughter of the king, there's mercy that's available to you that doesn't have a ceiling on it. It's endless. This is your story. This is your biography. And Paul says that as believers who've been raised to new life by loving God, two incredible things are true about you. One is found there in verse 6. One, you've been given authority. Look in verse 6. It says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And that's a political phrase. That's a phrase of authority. It's a political term. It means that here's what it's talking about. It's talking about you've received an authority relative to the spiritual powers that are mentioned in verse 2. He's made us alive with Christ. We've been seated with Christ in heavenly places, and that means He's given us authority, in in particular a capacity to not live under the influence and the reign and the power of the prince of the power of the air anymore. And we're going to get to a place one day where we're completely free from that power, right? But we were plugged into that power as born, as dead people in this world, but in Christ what He's done is He's unplugged that. Now, we can pick that plug back up and we can plug it back in. But you are free now to walk in the power of God, not in the power of the darkness of this world. That's what he's describing right there. And number two is this. As believers, not only are we given authority. Number two, as believers, we're raised in Christ in that God's made us his trophies of grace. Look at verse 7. It says, so that, and here's the reason why he did all of this. He says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and the kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Uh, several years ago, I, it was actually a few years ago, I went to Dallas, Texas to visit my uncle. He's lived there for several years, and we went to Dallas, and we got to go tour the Dallas Cowboys football stadium. Fascinating place. I think it cost like $1.5 billion dollars to build that thing and on the tour you actually get to go and take a look at the trophy case that displays all five of their Vince Lombardi Super Bowl trophies all neatly displayed for everybody to see now I would have loved to have used the Jaguars for this illustration but there's not a whole lot going on in our trophy case downtown a lot going on in Dallas's trophy case there they are five Super Bowl trophies and you can tell a lot of thought went into that you can tell they spent a lot of money on how they're displaying that. All the lights are fixed and positioned a certain way. They're clean. They're dusted. They're out for presentation so thousands of people can come and go, wow. And so the Dallas Cowboys can say through that display, look at what we did. Look at the, Hey, look at how victorious we've been. Look at our championships. And in a similar way, you know what this verse is saying? Is that part of the redeemed, as a resurrected son or daughter of God, you're in God's trophy case for all of eternity. He set us on display for ages to come, for all to see, for all of heaven to see, for God to say, look at what I did. If you're in Christ, you're in His trophy case. You're a trophy of His grace. And forever what we're going to do is we're going to worship Him, we're going to serve Him, and we're going to marvel at the grace on display in each other as part of the redeemed, and we're going to be caught up in the riches of His grace for all of eternity. Chapter 2 of our biography says, In Christ we've been raised to new life. We've been given authority. We're God's prized trophies. But here's the big question. How in the world did we get here? How did we get here? The question is, how did we go from such a bleak, hopeless reality to such a glorious place that's being described here by Paul in this biography of a Christian. 
Well, chapter 3 in our biography shows us, and it could be titled this, It's All by God's Grace. Buried in sin, raised to new life, all by the grace of God. We see that at the end of verse 5, by grace you've been saved. We see it again in verses 8 through 8 and 9, which I believe one of the most powerful, most potent, most glorious, most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. A scripture you need to memorize if you hadn't memorized it yet. Paul writes, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that we, no one, may boast. How did we get here spiritually? Here's how. For by grace. Grace can be defined like this. It's the kindness of love going out to the utterly undeserving. That's how you can define grace. It's the kindness of God, the love of God going out to the utterly deserving. So you ask, what's the difference between who we were and how we're described in verses 1 through 3 in the first chapter of our biography and who we see that we've become in verses 4 through 7 in the second chapter and that we've been raised with Christ? What's the difference? It's found in one word, the word grace. By grace you've moved from death to life. By grace you've gone from deserving hell to gaining heaven. By grace, our status has gone spiritually from bondage to freedom. By grace, our outlook has gone from despair to hope. By grace, our future has gone from eternal wrath to eternal glory. By grace, we've gone from being an enemy of God to being a fully forgiven child of the King. It's all by the amazing grace of God. And it's grace that's available to anybody. If you're physically alive this morning and can understand the words that are coming out of my mouth, it's grace that is available to you. And you need it. We're born dead and disobedient and doomed. The question is, how do we get it? How does God's amazing grace get from Him to us? Verse 8 tells us it's through faith. Faith is the instrument. Faith is the conduit. Faith is the funnel through which God's grace gets from Him to us. What that means is grace, His grace, His favor on your life. You understand you need that? I understand I need that. Listen, that doesn't come through religious ritual. That doesn't come through baptism. That doesn't come through praying the right words. It comes through faith alone. Well, the next question then in our, quest, in our mind should be, well, then what is faith? If I can only receive the favor of God and the acceptance of God and the grace of God through faith, well then, what is faith? Well, I want you to know it's more than intellectual assent. It's the idea of putting all of your confidence, all of your hope, all of your trust in someone. That's faith. And when you put the weight of your trust and the weight of your hope and the weight of your confidence on Jesus and you rely on the finished work that He accomplished on the cross to forgive you of your sins and to make you right with God, it's through that funnel of faith that God pours out the richness of His mercy and His grace on your life. You don't get that because you perform right. You don't get that as a result of works. Paul says in verse 8, it's not your own doing. Salvation is by grace through faith. This is one of the most dominant themes in the Bible, in Scripture, that you must understand in order for you to become a Christian. This is Christianity 101, that no matter how hard you try in your sin outside of Christ, the chasm between you and a holy God, you and your sin, and He and His holiness is too great. You can't bridge that gap. You say, well, I don't know about that this morning because 
I kind of believe that I can do a little more than you're giving me credit for, right? I'm, you know, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but like, I think if I really start trying really hard today and I pull myself up by the bootstraps and I really start trying to do good, I'm telling you, I'm going to commit today. I, I think I can close the gap. I think I can close the gap and bridge the chasm. I'm going to quit sinning. I vow that I'm not going to have one more unholy thought in this life. Hey, I'm not, hey, I'm not going to have even an impure motive. I vow from this day forward to honor God with my life perfectly, to never sin again. Scouts, honor, cross my heart. Hope that I stick a needle in my eye. I'm serious about this. Did you know that even if you were able to go a day doing that, which I don't even think that's possible, but if you were able to go a day doing that, keep in mind, it would take you doing that every day for all of eternity just to pay off the eternal debt of sins that you've occurred up to this point committed in your life. That's why when we read our Bible, it's a ridiculous view to hold, a spiritual world view to hold that the good in this life and my life can outweigh the bad. That's part of a Hindu philosophy called karma. That's not biblical Christianity. Christianity says it's impossible to pay off the sin debt. Christianity says I need somebody else to pay it off for me. I can't pay it myself. Uh, My son, y'all hear me talking about Max a lot. My son Max, he's eight years old. I told you, one day I'm going to stop sharing some Max stories, all right? But get another one today. All right, Max came home from school this past week. And he was just bright-eyed and excited and skipped through the door. And he's like, guess what? Today, I found a penny on the bus, and my bus driver let me have it. My penny right there, right? Oh, yeah, I got a whole penny. And he even said, hey, Daddy, it was heads up. You know what that means? I said, I knew what it meant, but I said, I don't tell me. It means it's lucky. And my friend said, well, test if it's really a lucky penny. So I flicked it up in the air. Boom again. Heads, this is a lucky penny. This is my penny. This is an important penny. And there Max is with his penny. It's a big deal. Got a lot of confidence in that penny. Now let me illustrate it like this. What if somehow Max got himself into some legal trouble and owed a debt collector $50,000? In his mind, he thinks he has a lot. In his mind, in his little mind, he might think that he can put a dent in that thing. But I want you to imagine Max there with his little penny, standing in the presence of that debt collector, and to say, as listen, as sinners in the presence of a holy God, to say that we're like Max standing before a debt collector who he owes $50,000 and all he has is a penny, that doesn't even begin to capture how infinitely more hopeless and helpless we are standing before a holy God with what we have to offer in light of what we owe. It doesn't begin to illustrate how infinitely more hopeless we are. The chasm's too great. The debt we owe is too great. There's no amount of religious activity. There's no amount of church attending. There's no amount of right living. There's no amount of right deed doing that somehow you can do to pay off the sin debt that you owe. You know what the Bible says about our righteous acts that we do apart from Christ that we want to come and we want to lay before God? It says they're like, they're like filthy rags. God's holiness is too great. Our sinfulness is too bleak. And when you come, here it is, when you come to terms with that, when you agree and step back that the chasm is too great, that you can't pay off the debt with your best living, your only option is to turn to Jesus and say, I need somebody else to pay the debt. I need someone else to pay what I can't pay, but that I owe. 
And it's when somebody hits their knees and surrenders to Him as Lord and Savior of their life and say, God, I don't have what it takes, but I believe what you did on the cross counts for me. And in humility, I receive it. I don't deserve it, but I receive it. That is saving faith. When you throw the weight of your hope and the weight of your confidence on what He did for you on the cross, that's the funnel through which the riches of His mercy pours out on your life and He raises you to new life and He forgives you of your sin and He adopts you into His family and you become a son or a daughter of God. And if you're a Christian this morning, it's all by His grace. You're a recipient of the grace of God. It came to you through faith, not by your works. Which Paul's saying, so don't boast in your works. Instead, worship God because of the work that He's done. This is the first, these are the first three chapters of our biography. Buried in sin, raised to new life, all by grace. But there's one final short chapter in our biography, and it's verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. So what Paul does here is he shows us that now we've been saved by grace. Here's what's next for us. And here's the last chapter of our biography. We're created for good works in Christ Jesus. So he just spent a lot of time and went to great lengths to remind us that we're not saved by good works. Our good works don't save us. But once we get saved, what we do is we strive to do good works for his glory. He's heading off that logical place that we can go to where, hey, I'm not saved. I'm not saved by my works. I'm saved by grace through faith. So I can just kind of sit, step back and sit on my hands and not do a whole lot. No, he's saying that's not biblical Christianity. You've been saved by the grace of God. So now he's saying get, work to, the, get to work for the glory of God. And it's who you are. He said, this is, this is, I've done this work for the purpose of you now going and walking through this world in a different way. He calls us his workmanship. You know what he's saying there? In, in that word workmanship, and it's a Greek word, it means poema, and it's a kind of an artwork term. But here's what I believe he's getting after right here. When he says, you're my workmanship, what he's saying is, I've raised you to new life, and I've masterfully put you back together. You're a newly restored image bearer of me. That's what God's saying. Well, all of us are born image bearers of God. We already went over that. We're born fearfully and wonderfully made, image bearers of God, but it's an image that's marred by sin. It's distorted by sin. But when we receive new life and God raises us up in Christ and we become spiritually alive, He masterfully puts us back together for the purpose of doing good work for His glory as image bearers. And we walk through this world now seeking to model the kingdom of God in a kingdom of darkness, sharing the gospel with a lost world, sharing the love of Christ, caring for the needy, living generously, doing works that glorify Him. In other words, you've been saved not just from something, but to something. You now have been saved. You are God's masterpiece. You're His workmanship. And you've been saved now to live a life of good works for His glory as a spiritually alive image bearer of God. This is who we are. And it's amazing, isn't it? Something major has happened here that's laid out in our our biography, hasn't it? Something major happened between chapter 1 and chapter 4. We found ourselves in chapter 1. What were we doing before Christ? We were following the unholy trinity of the world, the devil, and the flesh. And here we are in verse 10, being called the workmanship of God. What happened? A miracle happened. 
God lavished His grace and His mercy out on your life. And when that happens, when that miracle occurs, life change happens. Evidence and proof that the miracle has happened, that you've received new life, is you are being transformed. Not not looking for perfection, but you should be seeing progression. You know, sometimes we'll hear people say, you know what, I tried the Jesus thing and it didn't work for me. I tried it, and my friends are like Jesus people and Christ followers and disciples of Christ. I tried it, but it didn't work for me. Almost like they would say, I tried strawberry ice cream, but it just wasn't my thing. I'm more of a chocolate you know, person. Uh, strawberry ice cream just didn't do it for me. This is the way some people talk about Jesus, and that's why a lot of people float around trying different flavors and versions of Jesus and different flavors and versions of the gospel and Christianity that end up not being true biblical Christianity at all. Biblical Christianity can be better illustrated like this. You didn't like ice cream at all. You actually hated it. And now you love it. Why? Because you got new taste buds. You got a new appetite. You say, that's impossible. That's the whole point. It's a miracle. It's a work of God. He's done something that you couldn't do. That's conversion. That's regeneration. Well, I tried Jesus and it didn't work for me. That's the problem. You trying Jesus and God making you alive in Christ are two very different things. The whole chapter is about this miracle taking place. A miracle that takes place when you've trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior. When you've rested in His finished work on the cross. When you've taken a posture of repentance and faith towards Christ. God forgives you of your sin. He raises you to new life. And a lifelong work of gospel transformation begins in your life. And it's a miracle. He gives you a whole new set of desires, a whole new set of spiritual taste buds and appetites that grow more and more to love the things that you once hated and grows to hate the things in this world that you once loved. And it's a miracle. And God changes you. And that can be a slow and painful process sometimes, but nonetheless, it's a process that takes place in our lives as believers. Be encouraged. He's working on you this morning. If you're in Christ, He's working on you, and He's not going to stop working on you until you get to heaven, and He's going to finish the work that He started in you, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, because you're His workmanship. He's raised you to new life, created you for good works in Christ Jesus. He's raised you to new life, so now you can walk through this life different than you walked through it before. What a story. What a story. If you're in Christ, it's your story. Think about your story this morning. Just pause for a second. If you're in Christ this morning, think about where you once were without Christ. Think about where you were when Christ found you. Some people say, I found Jesus. No, Jesus wasn't lost, all right? Jesus found us. Think about where you were when Jesus found you. Here's where you were. You were buried six feet beneath death and sin and shame. But remember how through that funnel of faith, when you placed your faith in Him, He raised you to new life. And you experienced a spiritual resurrection that guarantees one day you will experience a bodily resurrection and you will live in a glorified body in a glorified state and serve Him and worship Him and delight in Him and enjoy Him for all of eternity in the new heavens and new earth. Remember what it was like when you got a new heart. 
Remember what it was like when you got a new set of appetites. Think about your story this morning. Think about how He seated you with Christ in heavenly places. Think about how you're a trophy of God's grace. Think about how you've been raised to walk a new life with Christ. Think about the implications of that. That the sin that you struggle with right now will not have the last word in your life. Think about your... This is your story. This is your song. What an amazing biography. This is not abstract. This is not theological theory. This is your story in Christ Jesus. So may we marvel at the grace of God that made it happen this morning. Let's pray. Let me end by asking you this morning. Who are you in this story? Who are you in this story? If you don't know Jesus, you're stuck in chapter 1. In verses 1 through 3, dead to the things of God, dead in sin, disobedient, doomed. You know, that can change this morning. By the grace of God, you can move from chapter 1 to chapter 2 and beyond. If you'll acknowledge this morning, God, I'm buried in my sin. You're real. I'm spiritually bankrupt. My only hope is you. Save me. You know, God's not in the business of turning anybody away who approaches Him like that with a humble heart seeking salvation. So repent of your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ. Throw the weight of your faith on the finished work of Christ on the cross. Believe He rose from the dead. And believe He's the only way to the Father this morning. Expressing that kind of faith is a funnel through which God pours out the richness of His mercy and His amazing grace on your life. And you can do that right where you're seated this morning. You can express those things to God through prayer. I'll be down front in a moment if you'd like to come and pray. I'd love to pray with you about that and help you take those steps towards following Christ. But you can enter into chapter 2 this morning. And this can become your story. If this is your story, you say, I needed this reminder this morning by the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit through him. I was buried in sin. Hopeless and helpless. I was dead in sin. But God raised me to new life. And it was all by His grace. And now I'm created to do good works for His glory in Christ Jesus. If that's you, marvel at His grace this morning. Let this stir the affections of your heart for Him. And may all of us ask God for help to live out our identity. We know our identity based on this. We're His workmanship. He's restoring His image within us. So there's good works for His glory. We do this week not to be saved, but because we're saved. So pray that He'd reveal to you what those are. And let's thank Him for His grace that we can live a life of meaningful purpose to point people to Him. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to stand and we're going to sing what I believe is a fitting song for us this morning. We're going to rejoice and marvel at the grace of God. Let's pray.